A place for confession. That's the topic today on Him We Proclaim with John Fonville. And thanks so much for joining us for some gospel-centered good news. If you're just joining in, we're in a series about historic Christian worship called The Gift Giver and His Gathered Guests. God being the gift giver and believers being the gathered guests. All have sinned, right? And how we respond to hearing God's word is everything. Do we turn away or get on our knees and confess? Let's talk more about this response. Here's John with the message called A Place for Confession, Part 1. So this is what the Apostle John says, 1 John chapter 1, beginning verse 5. He says, this is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say, if we claim we have fellowship with him, while we walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So we're looking at liturgy. We're looking at the public worship of the church called the divine service, God's service to us. The flow or rhythm of this divine service is not haphazard. It's very intentional. Historic Christian liturgies have an intentionality about them. One Lutheran theologian says, he says, the liturgy is not a chain of randomly selected liturgical elements that can be shuffled about like a deck of cards. He says, there is a logical order to the many parts of the liturgy. So all the parts of the liturgy, all the things that we do in corporate worship together week after week, they all move and work together to tell a story. We're telling a story every time we come together in worship. This story that we tell, it takes you through a gospel-shaped narrative. And so a great benefit of historic Christian worship is that it has, James Smith says, this narrative arc that rehearses the story of redemption. Every element of the service works together to rehearse God's story of reconciling sinners to himself, of restoring fellowship with himself and with one another. It's what this public worship does. And so James Smith says, worship that restores us is worship that restores us. All of us go throughout our week and we encounter all kinds of narratives in this culture, don't we? 
And those narratives powerfully shape us and they sweep us up into how we live and respond and act and think. And we have to come back to church to be restored in worship. And that worship that restores us is a worship that restores us into God's narrative. And so in order to restore us, Christian worship must be governed by the biblical story. And you know, every good story always has conflict, right? You can't have a good story without conflict. In fact, the essential piece of any good story is conflict. Um, J.R.R. Tolkien, right? I mean, greatest story writer ever. Listen to one of his letters that he wrote about the Lord of the Rings. And this is what he said. He said, in the Lord of the Rings, the conflict is not basically about freedom, though that is naturally involved. The story of the Lord of the Rings is about God and his sole right to divine honor. Sauron, that big, scary, you know, thing that comes on the screen and makes that, Sauron desired to be a God king. And was held to be this by his servants. If he had been victorious, he would have demanded divine honor from all rational creatures and absolute temporal power over the whole world. So Tolkien understood the power and the essential ingredient of conflict to make a story what it is and make a great story. So here's the question for us this morning What is the conflict in the Bible's story of redemption? How do you, how do you, what, it's the greatest story ever told, right? It's a true story. So what is the conflict in the Bible story of redemption? This brings us to the next element in worship in our liturgy. And that is the reading of God's law and the confession of sin. At this point in the divine service, the reading of the law and confession of sin We are brought face to face. The living triune God confronts us with the conflict and the story of redemption, which is what? What is it? It's the fall of man. Listen to the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 5, verse 12. The Apostle Paul writes, sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. There is the conflict. Paul reminds us in Romans chapter 3, verses 22 and 23, for there is no distinction between Jew or Gentile. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's the conflict. So in the public reading of God's law, every week in worship, We are confronted by the covenantal voice of our Lord, not suggesting but commanding to us the terms of his covenant, what he requires of all of us. And he says to us, when you hear the public reading of the law in church, you are hearing the voice of God. You are hearing the word of the Lord speak and address you. And he says to you this, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, not the great and first suggestion. 
and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount ratchets up God's law so high He ends it in Matthew 5, verse 48, and he says, if you haven't understood what I've been saying to you at this point, let me summarize it. You must be perfect as my heavenly Father is perfect. In the public reading of the law, we hear God's voice in his word of law echoing in our conscience Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. The law is not a faith. It is works that you are required to do. And then James, the half-brother of Jesus, could you imagine your half-brother being God incarnate? <laughs> it would make family get-together so difficult because he's always perfect, you know, like, gosh, why does he ever just lose it once like Stuart, right? <laughs> um, so James, the half-brother of Jesus, he reminds us, whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all. So the public reading of God's law and worship confronts us with the sobering reality that we have all sinned and come under the curse of God's law, which is death. We are confronted with the conflict in the story. We are confronted with the fact that God's law demands of us something that we are not able to do, namely what? Love God perfectly and love our neighbor perfectly, and it leaves us speechless, because that's what Paul says the law is intended to do in Romans 3. God's law speaks so that every mouth will be stopped. The public confession of sin illustrates the theology of Heidelberg Catechism, question 60. Question 60, part of it says this, I have grievously sinned against all the commandments of God and have never kept any of them, and as a justified spirit-indwelt believer, am still prone always to all evil and to sin. And so it is by the reading of God's law that we encounter the conflict that Paul makes in his confession in Romans chapter 7. He says in Romans chapter 7, verse 22, he says, For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in me, in my members, wretched man that I am. That's his confession of sin. And so if the worship service listened very carefully to me at this point, if God's public worship service, divine service to us, is to faithfully repeat the Bible's story of redemption, then we must be confronted by its conflict, and therefore there must be a place for confession of sin. If there is no place in public worship of the church for confession, there's no conflict in the story of redemption. 
For confession is the proper response of God's gathered guests in the hearing of the demands of God's law. The Apostle John tells us in this passage that a Christian is one who continually recognizes and confesses his or her sin on a regular basis. So in the public general act of confession in the liturgy, we all place ourselves in the right attitude by saying what is true. What is true? That we have in fact sinned in thought, word, and deed, and that we need God's forgiveness. However, when the public reading of God's law falls into disuse, so too has a genuine sense of what God requires of us. And so, too, has been lost a genuine sense of our standing before the eternal judge as, listen, lawbreakers, guilty. You see, the problem is, is we are left to ourselves, left to our private opinions, left to our feelings, our subjective hearts, left to our speculations. We might gradually drift away from this stark awareness that God's law confronts us with. Listen to Michael Horton. He says this. Before we heard the reading of the law, we thought we were good people who could be better. But after hearing God speak, we are like the children of Israel, hearing God deliver the commands. You speak with us and we will hear, they told Moses. But let not God speak with us lest we die. We can't take that. And so here again, the liturgy is our teacher every week. Teaching us. What is it teaching us? Giving us the words to say and assisting us to enter rightly into the corporate worship of the church. Each Lord's Day, we assemble to hear God's word of law read to us. Paul told Timothy, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture. Scripture is either law or gospel. So we could say, devote yourself to the public reading of God's law and God's gospel. So we come before God. We assemble to hear God's word of law read to us. And when, we, when that happens, we will recognize our sinfulness in fresh ways. Because the Holy Spirit takes God's law and convicts us. You see, every week in the public worship, we, we, we reenact dying and being raised again in resurrected life. We are, our Adam is trying to continually live, and the Holy Spirit, by his love and grace and mercy, is trying to take his law continually and kill us so that we can be raised to newness of life and actually live. And so God's law helps us to recognize our sinfulness in fresh ways as the Holy Spirit uses his law, not only in his explanation and preaching, but in his public reading to convict us. The reading of God's law, what does it do? It humbles us before God. It assists us in recognizing over and over that we still remain, despite the work of the Holy Spirit in our life, corrupt in all our faculties, desires, and actions, in thought, word, and deed. This is Paul's lament in the book of Romans, in Romans chapter 7. 
And so we agree, we confess with God's just sentence against us for our sins. Were we not under God's covenant mercies in Christ, this is exactly what we would deserve. So we confess we are not what we would be. We confess we are not what we should be. And we confess we are not what we shall be. Now, including a corporate confession, and I understand this, is certainly not a way to uh, win friends and influence people, right? Right? I I get it. People are not generally amenable to being asked when they come to church to humble themselves and to kneel and confess their sins and unworthiness before God. I I understand that doesn't generally pack the masses out. We like our services to be peppy. They can be snappy, right? Happy, clappy, upbeat, short, positive, inspirational. Our daily bread, a pick-me-up for the week. But you see, the importance of including a general confession at the beginning of the corporate worship of the church is essential John Calvin, in his Institutes, articulated this well. When he was, in his efforts to try to reform the medieval church, John Calvin, when he restructured the liturgy of the church in Geneva and in Strasbourg, he took the confession of sin, the reading of God's law, and he placed it at the very beginning of the services in both Strasbourg and Geneva. And he counseled that a confession of sin, listen, ought to be ordinary in the church, end quote. So listen to what he said about this. Because remember, these these people didn't understand this kind of confession. They they had auricular confession. We won't get into that, but that, that doesn't work. This confession works. And listen to what he says about corporate general confession of sin at the front of the liturgy of the church's worship. He says, besides the fact that ordinary confession has been commended by the Lord's mouth, no one of sound mind who weighs its usefulness can dare disprove of it. For since in every sacred assembly we stand before the sight of God and the angels, what other beginning of our action will there be than the recognition of our own unworthiness? If you consider how great is our complacency, our drowsiness, or our sluggishness, you will agree with me that it would be a rather salutary regulation if the Christian people were to practice humbling themselves through some public rite of confession. We see this custom observed with good result in well-regulated churches. That every Lord's Day, the minister frames the formula of confession in his own and the people's name. And by it, he accuses all of wickedness and implores pardon from the Lord. In short, with this key, this confession of sin, with this key, listen, a gate to prayer, a gate to worship is opened both to individuals in private and to all in public. Confession of sin 
and the liturgy is the gate to prayer and worship. I want you to remember again the Latin expression that we said at the beginning of this series, lex orandi, lex credendi. The law of praying is the law of believing. What we do in worship affects our theology and vice versa. What we believe affects what we do in worship. So being directly confronted with a sharp allegation of our own sinfulness may be arresting for many, and they may not want to come to a church that requires them to be confronted by the living God, but the element of confession is the way disciples are made, shaped, and formed. Because John, in 1 John says, this is what? Christians do. This Lutheran liturgical theologian, he says, God has been named in vocation and so is present among his people. God's holy presence for people living in a stumbling but self-important world is always an indictment. Like a child whose mother walks unexpectedly into the kitchen, our hands are caught in the proverbial cookie jar. We are busted. He's exactly right. And so the morning's liturgical story, we're rehearsing the story of the Bible, the morning's liturgical story is prepared for by rubbing our nose in our failure. So much for seeker friendliness, right? So Kneeling during the confession and absolution of sins is a common worship practice among churches that follow historic worship. Why do we kneel during the confession of sins in public worship? Or if you can't kneel, obviously, then why do you just sit as an act of humility? Why do you do this? The first and most obvious reason is because God calls us to do this. One of the clearest passages in Scripture comes from Psalm 95, where the Lord, through the psalmist, exhorts the gathered assembly, Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker. It's not a suggestion. Notice that the Lord's call to worship here involves the whole person. Body and soul are offered in worship to God body and soul. We find examples of such whole body worship and prayer throughout scripture. Let me just give you a couple of examples. Daniel chapter six. Daniel, we find him kneeling in prayer three times a day. And that kneeling in prayer three times a day got him thrown in the lion's den. In 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 54, Solomon kneels before the altar of the Lord in the temple and he raises his hand stretched out towards heaven and he prays. In Ezra chapter 9, Ezra hears the news of the Israelites' sinful marriages to adherents of other foreign false religions. And the Bible says in Ezra 9, 5 and following that Ezra falls on his knees and spreads out his hands and he prays for and confesses the sins of the people. In Luke chapter 22, verse 41, as Jesus entered into the Garden of Gethsemane as the last Adam to reverse the work of the first Adam. It says in chapter 22, verse 41, that he knelt in prayer to his father. 
In Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14, Paul says that, quote, he bows his knee before the Father. That's how Paul prayed. He would kneel. He would bow his knees. In Romans chapter 14, verse 11, the Apostle Paul cites Isaiah 45, verse 23. Listen, he says, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 10, the Apostle Paul again cites Isaiah 45, 23. And after Jesus, who is exalted to the right hand of the Father with all authority in heaven and on earth, Paul says, God the Father has highly exalted him, Jesus, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. If you're not comfortable kneeling now, you won't be then. This is good practice. Thanks, John. The message you're listening to is called A Place for Confession, Part 1. We'll hear Part 2 of this message next time. The heart of Him We Proclaim is to bring you the gospel of good news each weekday. With each message, our prayer is you would hear, believe, and enjoy the gospel in your life. If you want to re-listen to or share any of these messages, you can find our smartphone app or locate our podcast by searching for Dr. John Fonville or Him We Proclaim. Him We Proclaim is a broadcast of Dr. John Fonville. If you would like to learn more about his local church in Jacksonville, Florida, you can visit ParamountChurch.com. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us next time.